0: Hello and welcome to Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Welcome to this week's Date of Crypto Brainstorm, hosted by Amun. My name is Hanson Wang. I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we will shed some light on the environmental impact of Bitcoin. As most of you know, proof-of-work is an energy-intensive process to verify transactions And we've seen various news outlets report the energy consumption of the Bitcoin network to be on par with the energy consumption of small countries like Liechtenstein or Malta. But is this comparison justified? And if yes, how does this energy consumption compare to the energy consumption of the financial industry or other industries? And what are the alternatives to guarantee the safety and integrity of an open blockchain? Today, I'm joined by Lanre and Ophelia from the Amun team to discuss this important question. Ophelia, as a topic leader, why don't you kick off the session?
1: Sure, happy to. So, this topic comes up quite a bit uh, in the investment community um, and, quite frankly, more broadly in the crypto community around how to think about environmental impacts associated with crypto, with Bitcoin, with mining, with the um, types of electronic waste produced out of these activities. And what that means when you are evaluating Bitcoin from a ESG or an environmental and social responsibility perspective. Um, To give you guys some numbers, just for some context, uh, annual electricity of Bitcoin as of 2018 was about 46 terawatt hours. Um, annually and generates somewhere between 22 and 23 megatons of carbon, um, which is massive. Uh, To put that in perspective, the energy consumption and therefore sort of associated carbon outputs from these types of activities are by some estimates up to 1,200 times greater than um, what you would see in a traditional format transaction. And for obvious reasons, this can cause some concern. It means that, you know, as Hansen said, Bitcoin mining uses the same amount of energy as small countries. Um, that energy usage is closely tied to a combination of mm-hmm. improvements on the technical side. So better cooling processes or computers, quite frankly, that heat up less Um, When mining are a big part of how you can drive energy efficiency, the other half is um, hash rates and the the computational complexity required um, to validate transactions and what kind of speeds the network is operating at. So these values can fluctuate over time, but it's still significantly more intensive than traditional financial infrastructure One of the big arguments that has been made around energy consumption, especially for Bitcoin networks, is that the majority, something like 70% of that energy is actually generated from renewable energy resources based on where these things are located um, and, quite frankly, largely driven by cheap energy. Um, Energy costs are the largest cost that goes into mining Bitcoin, and it's something people are extremely sensitive to, and cheap renewables, things like hydro, have a tendency to be really attractive for people who are looking to establish industrial scale mining facilities. The issue that people take with those estimates, um, and one that, quite frankly, I share, is that it's very hard to determine over time whether that energy mix is constant, Um Hydro in particular is extremely seasonal. Most renewable energy is seasonal in some capacity, whether it's wind or it's solar. Um, It depends on environmental factors and what prevailing direction the winds are in right now and what their strengths are and how much water sits behind that dam in order to really determine how much energy those facilities are going to produce. And therefore, what the regional energy mix is month over month or season over season can vary tremendously. Um, making it somewhat difficult to accurately estimate over time what percentage of um, this energy is really renewable. And I think that that's one important aspect. The other, um, which is equally complex, is that, quite frankly, a lot of these energy resources, especially large-scale renewable like hydro, have a tendency to be located um, in very remote areas. Uh, And as a result of that, a combination of the fact that we don't have great energy storage technology at a global level uh, means that a lot of that energy has a hard time um, reaching markets. And so the question is, if it's not being used for anything, is it a good thing to use it for Bitcoin mining? And even if everything is renewable, which is still up for debate, or even if a large proportion is renewable, what is the, is that really the best use of our renewable energy resources globally? Um, And so hopefully that sort of sets the stage a little bit for um, this discussion. And I'd love to open it up and hear what you guys think in terms of both how how to think about those energy resources, but also from both an ethical perspective as to whether or not this is the best use for them as well as from a you know more practical technical perspective.
0: Thank you, Ophelia, for the introduction um several points uh, you addressed which I'd like to comment on uh, let's start with the first one, which is a uh, comparison between the bitcoin energy consumption and the corresponding consumption of the traditional um, transaction system, let's call it for that. Um, so I feel like, I mean, even though it's not easy to measure the Bitcoin energy consumption, it's much more straightforward than to measure the energy consumption of, uh, of the financial system, right? Wh- what do you even do? You have to, you know, measure the, the costs of the offices of all the banks and all the countries uh, the employees, the computers they use, and so on. Um, I can imagine the very hard exercise for scientists to get accurate data on there. Um, I personally, I mean, I don't have data on that, but I would guess that the energy consumption should be higher for the traditional financial system than for Bitcoin, merely because the traditional financial system is so much bigger than Bitcoin. Um, So we can touch on that afterwards again. Now, relating to the other point that you made, um, Ophelia, about the source of energy or electricity for for Bitcoin mining. Um, I feel like, you know, when you generate electricity, especially renewable electricity from, let's say, wind, and you said that very accurately, there's not good storage options right now. If it's a very windy day, you generate lots of electricity, and unless this demand is increased proportionally to the supply, you have an overlay of uh, electricity that that just goes goes to waste, basically, right? And I feel like we could already optimize the energy consumption of Bitcoin if we could, you know, locate the mining farms in places like this, you know, close to a source. Hydro source or wind source, and when the uh, you know when the electricity when the wind is very very strong and more electricity is generated, then um, you could use that excess electricity to verify transactions, and then it wouldn't be any waste actually, right?
1: So that's not an entirely how energy infrastructure works. So I, I think that's the other important piece, and I'm not I'm not sure that people. Um, in the crypto community are as aware of the way our energy grids are created and maintained. Our energy grids function in two ways um, at a very practical level. There are two kinds of energy resources. There is base energy, which is typically things that are hard to bring online, so think nuclear power, think coal-fired power plants and certain types of turbines where they're very, very hard to turn on, they're very hard to turn off, they operate 24-7, 365, and they act as base load, which is the core portion of energy that is required to maintain grid stability such that when you go to turn on the light bulb, the light bulb turns on immediately right? The grid has to have a certain amount of base power in it at all times. In addition to that, you then have something called peak load power, which has to do with it's 5pm, everyone is going home, they're turning on their TVs, they're doing their laundry, they're blow drying their hair, and they're cooking dinner. And so suddenly demand for energy resources goes up considerably. The types of energy sources that are used for these two different kinds of power can be very different. And that plays an important role when you think about Bitcoin mining. Because the question becomes, when are you actually doing this? And therefore, what kind of energy resources are you actually tapping into? Um, And I think when you're saying, you know, mine more when wind is strong, that that works to some degree, but there's also an element of, well, hydro is typically baseload power, people don't really use a lot of power at three o'clock in the morning, it's actually cheaper to buy power from the grid, if you're a like institutional or commercial-grade power user if you acquire it at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, it's one of the reasons people do something called peak shaving, where they actually p- uh, buy battery packs that charge at 3 a.m. and then use that to offset the power that they use at noon when power is, on a comparable basis, more expensive. Um, and this, is, this isn't something necessarily you would see in retail, so most people... Um, certainly in the U S don't pay based on like market forces for power generation, but they do, they pay sort of a fixed base rate. Um, But that is somewhat different for commercial clients or for industrial scale energy users. And so when you think about this, to some degree you would think miners would be incentivized to mine during non peak hours because of the, the relative energy cost. But that's not necessarily going to always be the case because it doesn't necessarily line up with when Bitcoin networks are most active. And I think that's an element where that is much harder to control and align with time. And I I don't think I've seen anything, and I, I'd be curious if anybody else has, around miners really trying to optimize for that type of thing um, and use things like demand response in order to more accurately and more easily acquire power um, at specific pricing.
0: Lanre or or Ophelia, um, I don't know this answer, that's why I'm asking you. Do you know where the majority of Bitcoin farms are located? Um, I know that like Ophelia said, they're often in remote areas and I also know that there used to be a lot of them in China. I think more than half of hashing power came from China. But then the government intervened, so that stopped. But do you guys actually know where most of the uh,
2: Bitcoin um, farms are? Yes, so I'll chime in there. Uh, Two points, since I want to go back to Ophelia's point earlier, since I thought that was interesting, but I'll answer your question first, Hanson. So despite some of the regulation that the Chinese government seems to have enforced against Bitcoin mining, at least according to some of the more recent research, so some of the stuff that CoinShares have put out, and then a lab out of MIT also put out some research as to the geographic distribution of Bitcoin mining. It does seem that the Sichuan region, so in the east, east of China, seems to generally be considered to be where between 30 to 50% of Bitcoin mining activity ostensibly is located. Uh, and especially CoinShares article argues that is primarily because of the large amounts of hydroelectric energy which tends to be found in that region so i think that's a you know cursory answer to your question i also want to go back to what ophelia said in terms of the effect of seasonality on bitcoin miner behavior and i think there are two ways to tackle this especially on a micro level so as you talked about within a given day have you seen evidence to suggest that bitcoin miners perhaps change their behavior depending on market conditions uh And then also on a macro level, do we see changes in Bitcoin mining or the extent to which Bitcoin miners mine in different seasons? Uh, For example, in the Sichuan region, in wet periods versus damp periods. And the MIT research, which we'll link in the footnotes to to this podcast, made the argument that there doesn't really seem to be that much of a seasonal effect for Bitcoin mining thus far which means that Bitcoin miners don't necessarily change or turn up their mining machines uh, at certain hours or not, or turn up their mining machines, machines during certain periods or not, depending on various macroeconomic conditions, which I find quite interesting. Maybe this will change as the industry continues to develop and things like energy storage within Bitcoin, the Bitcoin mining industry develops. But as of yet, there doesn't seem to be much of a precedent for that. And if it were to be extremely pronounced, maybe that's something we could measure in hash rate numbers, or if one were to set up a Bitcoin node and see how connections to the Bitcoin node vary over time or in different time periods. But there doesn't seem to, be, seem to be anything related to that at the moment. And I think that also makes it even further more interesting when we go back to the environmental point, because a key argument, in the a key piece of the argument to suggest that. I think the number was 74.1% of the Bitcoin mining network was powered by renewables. Was the assumption that the energy mix, especially in the Sichuan region for Bitcoin mining, was more or less constant uh, as the energy mix were would be during wet seasons. When in fact, especially some I was looking at some of the numbers, apparently between wet and damp seasons, especially in the Sichuan region, the amount of energy that hydroelectric power produces varies by 3x, which means that those numbers can drastically change depending on the seasons. And especially since Bitcoin miners don't necessarily turn their machines off in response to seasonal changes, it means that a number like 74.1% can massively vary in damp in damp periods. And it probably is the case that it does.
1: And I would also add to that, Aside from that seasonal variability, which has to do with the possibility of renewable resources generating the corresponding amount of power, that's seasonal in the long term. You also have seasonal, I mean, you also have fluctuations intraday as different combinations of energy resources are brought online, which we were just talking about. And then the last piece, and I would argue, to some extent, for me, the um, the most challenging is that all of these decisions are economically incentivized, right? what is it, 60 to 80% of the cost of mining, I believe, is associated with energy costs. It's an enormous proportion of energy costs, including cooling, obviously, but it's an enormous proportion of how people's math works for how and when to mine. The issue there is, especially when you think about China and when you think about Certain regions of even the U.S. and Iceland where they're doing this, the energy mix can vary tremendously also due to economic pressures and the amount of um, availability of any specific energy resource. So, for example, there are times of year or there are moments in time due to global economic forces where burning coal is going to be significantly less expensive than a solar panel on a per kilowatt hour basis. The people who maintain grids are in the business of acquiring energy cheaply while meeting certain types of targets. They're not in the business of ensuring a continuous supply of renewables. Um, Anecdotal evidence, for example, in New York, um, one of the things that I've seen is we actually get a notice at home to say, hey, would you like to opt in for only renewable power? And you will, it actually changes the pricing on a kilowatt hour basis of what you're paying for your electricity use. That's a very new thing. Um, and it's not something that we see a ton of because it's ultimately not the business of most of the energy infrastructure providers. And that per kilowatt hour cost on the production side is highly influenced by other macro forces well beyond just seasonality and weather. How is the oil market performing? What's happening with LNG? What's happening with um, the cost of silicone associated with building um, new solar panels? What's happening with sort of any number of these elements? And at what cost do providers of energy want to sell into the grid? Um, And granted, again, this can vary tremendously by country in terms of how their grid is actually set up and how these ownership structures work. But for example, in the U.S., power generators and the people who run grid infrastructure are not necessarily the same company. Um, and, and, And that's a huge dynamic here where you have an entire secondary set of market forces that are not just about miners looking to source the most inexpensive energy possible, but you also have people who maintain energy infrastructure looking to source the cheapest cost of energy possible on the back end. And so even if you were to assume that that seasonality do- doesn't exist, the economic forces on that act on this grid can massively change that energy mix. So unless you are actually going through to a specific miner who's actually vertically integrated and running their own energy resource, it's actually very hard to know where that specific kilowatt hour originated from or what the mix at that specific point in time was, especially given um, the limited amount of reporting out of the mining industry, but also, quite frankly, the limited amount of real-time reporting out of um, people who maintain grid infrastructure.
0: I want to actually, you know, we've so- talked about the source of the energy um, for, for, for mining. Um, I want to go a little bit into the actual mining process, and I want to hear you guys' view on if you think that proof of work might be actually uh, wasting energy. Because th- the fact is, yeah, let's say there's 100,000 miners in the world, and the next block is about to be solved, and every single one of those 100,000 miners off in their pools um, tries to solve the same riddle right now. Everyone is trying to find the the nouns um, that will solve the next block. And if one person has solved the block, yeah, let's say it was Ophelia who solved the block, then all the electricity put in by all the other 99,999 other miners basically is for nothing. That's that's the main argument that I see from the people who, who do claim that Bitcoin, you know, wastes too much energy that, that, you know, the consensus mechanism as it is right now, uh, it's just a trial and error and trial and error is fundamentally not efficient. It's very, very inefficient. It's almost the most inefficient way to do something.
2: Yeah. Hansen, I think that brings up a really interesting point. And I guess when we think about that, we can demarcate two groups when we question, whether the Bitcoin mining process is efficient or not. So, on one side, you have, you know, perhaps the layman, someone that isn't involved in crypto, doesn't necessarily see the value proposition of Bitcoin, for better or for worse, and thinks, oh, so these miners, a bunch of miners, are wasting electricity, despite the fact only one of them, as you said, actually mines a block, and is involved in the process of a, appending that block to the blockchain. To put it simply. And one group would argue that and from there would argue that that process is inefficient and a waste of electricity. The other group, and especially when you talk to some hardcore Bitcoiners would argue, no, if you actually think about the proof of works algorithm and how proof of work works, it's quite essential for miners to quote unquote waste electricity because that process is what ensures the censorship resistance of Bitcoin. And maybe to step back and to explain that a bit more. So the concept of proof of work have, has you know, existed before Bitcoin actually was launched in 2009. And, you know, simply can be argued to be a piece of data, which is very difficult to generate, but quite easy to verify. And the role that it plays in Bitcoin is to ensure that the identity management system or the identity mechanism for creating new blocks, which have to be done every single every 10 minutes isn't extremely easy to be subverted. So, so this could be like, so people tend to say Bitcoin mining is all proof of work is a consensus algorithm. It's probably a bit more correct to say that it's more like a civil resistant, uh, mechanism where civil resistance is res- a resistance of a network to attacks that, b- uh, fraud, the identity management system of that network. And so under that conception, given the fact that proof of work mining and a lot of miners mining and wasting electricity ensures that the Bitcoin network doesn't necessarily or isn't as vulnerable to a 51% attack or any other kind of a civil attack, those Bitcoiners and those um, people on that side of the argument would argue that, yeah, no, Bitcoin mining isn't inefficient at all because we value censorship resistant money so highly that this process is necessary. And I think at the core of the question becomes whether or not you think the benefit of censorship resistant money outweighs the costs of electricity of miners or whether you think that it's possible to replicate the civil resistance without using proof of work, which is still an open question and Perhaps some of the alternatives like proof of stake or proof of space time haven't developed to the stage at which those in the community can really argue that they provide the same amount of civil resistance or censorship resistance as Bitcoin's proof of work.
1: And look, I think that's a very valid point. I, But I think you're almost making it too binary, right? It, it's not, there's a sliding scale there, right? Between saying you know, concerns about energy uses and concerns about what effectively amounts to network integrity. Um, and, and there's a sliding scale there. And I think as a community, we haven't necessarily decided where on that spectrum we sit comfortably and saying, okay, we're comfortable with this kind of footprint in order to receive this kind of benefit. And so where does proof of stake sit in that? And, and how does this technology evolve? I think that's still very much an open question. And I think Quite frankly, our, our own industry's ethics on where we sit on this is still very much an open question. To go back to a point Hansen made, you know, how, how do you compare energy usage here with energy usage in traditional environments? And on a per-transaction basis, not at an industry level, Bitcoin is... Inefficient um, on an energy basis versus, um, let's call it, some more traditional ways of moving around money. That doesn't necessarily mean that. Do we value some of these these elements that you're talking about twelve hundred times more than we value each kilowatt hour of energy, which we use more of on a per transaction basis? And I think there's a value judgment there that we haven't come to yet, and the alternatives and their Certainly will be, and we, as an industry, will have to contend with this. Maybe aren't at the point where um, we can comfortably make that assessment and say, okay, yes, we know for a fact that this is a better system. Um, and I think, to some degree, it's a wait and see kind of problem. You know, we we need to see what Ethereum does with proof of stake. We need to see how um, some of these other consensus mechanisms evolve and how those networks um, grow before we can necessarily make a real decision about which of those two, the, you know, the two halves of the equation you were laying out are more valuable to us.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think I did posit the argument as, yeah, as you said, a bit too binary. I, I, I think especially going back to last week, we talked about open source governance, especially with Bitcoin. One problem with Bitcoin, especially when we talk about alternative consensus mechanisms, things like proof of stake, which Ethereum hopes to implement in the next year or two, is that by design, Bitcoin's governance generally has quite a status quo bias. So Bitcoin has really never had any hard forks. And if Bitcoin were to transition to alternative algorithm from proof of work, a hard fork would be required. So just because of that, and that status quo bias, which is kind of hard coded into the governance within Bitcoin, it means that often people can be resistant to discussions of the environmental impacts of Bitcoin, much more so than say people in the Ethereum Ethereum community, where from the start, there's always been the expectation that, especially from some of the leaders of the community, such as Vitalik Budarin or Vlad, that eventually they'll be transitioning from stake. And maybe this goes back to a more open general question about how we formulate and think about general problems of ESG. So not just necessarily just related to environment, but just overall social and governance issues in crypto and how we can start to have more healthy discussions about, about them, which actually lead to change down the line.
1: I think that's a great point. Uh, the, we talk about ESG, especially when people think about Bitcoin, and they're very focused on the energy components. And for very good reason, it's an incredibly important topic. Um, and, you know, given what the world is facing in terms of climate change, in terms of energy and security, in terms of um, sea level rise and, and, and changes to um, socioeconomic factors on the back of that, um, food security. I mean, this is a massively important decision that we're making, not just as a crypto community, but as a, a global community. But there is an additional element here that I don't think gets discussed nearly as frequently as the energy conversation does, which is the social side of ESG. These types of networks ultimately provide a way for people who live in places where they may not have equal access to banking services to actually join global financial markets. And I think that's an easy platitude when you know, you're know you sitting in, in Zurich uh, or you know, in, in the U.S., but I think it's a, a much more challenging thing when you think about this at a global level. If you think about uh, women's rights, um, the ability for a woman to own property in places where that is extremely difficult to do or virtually impossible – these type crypto and and Bitcoin specifically actually lets them have a a means of exchange that they can own um, and have control over. And that's incredibly important when you think about things like domestic violence, uh, violence against women, disenfranchisement, economic empowerment, and quite frankly, protecting um, communities which may not be as let's call it economically independent as you know, we have a tendency to assume the base case is. And even in the U.S., I mean, obviously, sort of women um, typically have less access to banking services. They have less access to global financial markets, even in developed countries. And that's a huge thing that potentially, when you make these kinds of... When you're setting up that equation of saying energy use versus governance versus... All of these issues that we're discussing, you need to layer in this other element that there's an enormous amount of social good that's coming out of this. And where does that factor into this equation? And how do you, how do we as a community make value judgments around what is important and how do we prioritize that?
0: I really like that last point. It, I mean, it's, now we can close the circle. We go all the way back to the beginning question, which is, uh, you know, Like Ophelia stated, the per transaction cost of Bitcoin is way higher than the per transaction cost of traditional financial systems. I think the number that you found was around 12,000 times, right? 1,200. 1,200, okay, sorry, yeah. What, What is the actual worth of including, I think even today, there are still 2 billion people who are unbanked, right? Adding 2 billion more people to the financial system, giving people who needed the most access to to the you know opportunity to get loans to get financing um, that that does make you know Bitcoin a, It's that's one of the most attractive sides about Bitcoin that it's a kind of money that can include people who have not been included uh, previously and I love that you know you're right people always just talk about the same thing they say hey you know proof of work uh, you know waste lots of energy uh, to keep the system secure or not waste, but, you know, uses lots of energy to keep the system secure. But like you said, at the same time, um, it does open up, uh, you know, new opportunities for, for billions of people, literally. I think that's a great place um, to stop here. Uh, I want to thank both of you, Lara and Ophelia. It has been very fun to speak about this with you um, I hope you enjoyed it as well, the audience, and we look forward to seeing you next time. This was it from the immune team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter
2: or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week.